Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance podcast. Both myself and Ben Ashworth at Informed Performance have had some downtime recently, just like yourselves listening, no doubt. But I'm pleased to say that we're back and we have some cracking guests coming on the show over the next few weeks and months. And we've also got the Informed Performance digital magazine dropping this month, which you'll be able to access very soon. On today's show, I will be speaking to Daniel Greenwood, Director of the Human Performance Centre at the University of Memphis. Daniel was kindly introduced and highly recommended to me from Blake Whitcomb at iMeasureU. And in the couple of conversations I've had with Daniel, including today's episode, I can confidently say that you're in for a treat for today's show. Daniel will be eloquently explaining and bridging together biomechanics, movement and skill acquisition for us. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Let's switch over to the episode between myself and Daniel Greenwood. Daniel, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to get you on. Cheers, Andy. Appreciate it. Just to begin with, can you provide the backstory on your career and tell the listeners about your background through to the current day? Yeah, sure. So um, like all of us, started out with a love of sport. Um, I originally wanted to head towards sort of coaching routes um, and being a not great athlete, it was suggested that I do, you know, that undergraduate sports science degree to sort of give me a little bit of a leg up there. Um, As I was going through that process, um, I really just fell in love with the science side of it, which was semi-ironic because I dropped out of science in high school because I hated it. Um, But I found I really fell in love with the science once it started becoming applied and once I saw a purpose to it um, and yeah, really just took to it from there. So um, I was in cricket. That was my sport. So I headed down the biomechanics route because that was what you did back then. Um, worked at the, I uh, was sort of uh, interned at the Australian Institute of Sport for a year, went over to Singapore for a couple of years working in biomechanics. And it was really there, that sort of combination that started to shift my, <clears throat> I guess, my path. And I guess when you add that to the coaching route, it sort of makes sense. So I'd spent a few years measuring stuff, um, sort of biomechanically, getting really good, really accurate measurements. And I remember I was working with a basketballer one day and you know, we'd done some work on his jump shot and, you know, I'd done the analysis and he was really drifting left to right, left to right with his whole body, whole feet as he was jumping. Um, and he said, great, so so how do I fix it? And I said, uh, practice? And he was like, anything more? And I was like, no, I don't really have more. My skill set is measuring what's wrong. And it was at that point that I realized that perhaps I needed a better answer to that. So I went back to school, uh, got my PhD in skill acquisition and learning there in Brisbane, Um, then had a couple of roles after that in sort of a skill acquisition um, and biomechanics role. So at the Queensland Academy of Sport, then at the Australian Institute of Sport. 
had the experience of going to a couple of Olympic Games, working with some gold medal athletes and, you know, really just, you know, living the sports science dream. And now I'm over here in uh, beautiful Memphis, Tennessee, working as the director of the Human Performance Centre. It's quite the journey. And do you know what? I love that you said you hated science until it became applied because I, I'm the same as you. I had absolutely no interest in science. And now I'm an applied scientist, if you like, as, as, a, as a physio and strength coach. So I think it's quite funny how, uh, how things can change in that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that sort of follows a thread through a lot of the work that I do, that I have a hate for collecting data that's not important or, you know, doing research that doesn't make a difference. And so I think that applied bent is sort of, it's like ingrained in my brain in terms of this needs to make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, we've spoken before and we've briefly chatted about maybe the disconnect that sometimes exists between um, screening and testing and then intervening to not always see a change, uh, whether that's for injury risk or rehab or whether that's for performance. Um, I know you're personally interested in kind of, you know, as we call it, bridging the gap between biomechanics and skill acquisition. And you've done some work in this space. Um, firstly, could we just talk about maybe some of the practical problems that you were seeing that really got you into this? Well, I guess the the practical start was that, uh, you know, I worked at the Queensland Academy of Sport. I worked at the Australian Institute of Sport with high-level athletes, great coaches, used amazing equipment to measure performance really accurately. And we sort of, we, we get in this groove where we would um, sort of measure athletes. We would then bring them back in three months time or six months time to remeasure them because they'd been working on this thing for that long. And we'd find that we'd get the same data out three months later. Um, and it just grew, it grew bizarrely just stupid in the fact that we were, measuring spending all this time you know you'd get up in the morning you know at 4 a.m to get to the rowing lake to rig up the boats to measure the athletes in action and then you'd do it three months later and it's exactly the same thing and so this 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 measurement wasn't changing anything this reporting of data wasn't making any any difference the telling people what was wrong was not helping uh and so I guess that bridge really was the fact that we have to be involved in the process of change, the process of like true understanding of what's going wrong rather than just accurate measurement because as, and as skill acquisition will tell you, simply telling someone what's wrong is not helpful. And in fact, I'd almost argue it's the easiest part of, of any of our jobs, you know, this is wrong. Okay. Thanks. See you later. I mean, really that's not, that's not applied science. We've got to be. We've got to be better than that. Otherwise, we're just technicians, really. Yeah, and not to not meaning to put you on the spot, but um, you know, I think skill acquisition is maybe a phrase that lots of us in sport are comfortable with. But I think truly defining it in uh, in a sentence is probably uh, something that a lot of us would struggle to do concisely and accurately. How do you kind of? Um, you know, as you see it or as, as you define it, how do you kind of phrase skill acquisition or how do you kind of understand that term and apply it? Uh, to me, skill acquisition is just the science of learning. It's just an understanding of how we learn from a scientific point of view. And um, one of the things I wonder is, you know, you've obviously uh, thought about this and 
screened athletes, tester, tested athletes to then uh, see if you can make a difference. Is there any maybe practices that in your work you learned weren't effective that maybe some people are still doing or believing in now, you know, as a, you know, as a really kind of crude example, like the 10,000 hour rule, or, you know, you've got to do X number of reps to make a difference. Is there any kind of, um, kind of crude practice or, uh, maybe myths that need to be debunked around this theme? Uh, I think, uh, I think a great place to start is almost just to tell you or to share, to share with everybody listening, I guess my perception of what skill acquisition is, how people learn. And I think that as we start to understand that, I think then you can almost take your own, own lens to what, what you think you know or what people tell you or what, what the current myths are. And so to me, I, I mean, the, the branch of skill acquisition science or the theoretical underpinning I use is that of ecological psychology. And that essentially is state or the concept is that you're shaped by the world around you and your behavior will always adapt to the world that you're operating in. And so if you take that sort of, if you take that in a sporting context, you know, like a really generic thing would be the people that you're around will shape the way you talk and the way you act. So if you're around athletes, if you're around coaches, if you're around the head coach, if you're around parents, if you're around your colleagues, just simple things like your response to, hi, how are you going, will change based on the environment that you're in. And so as you expand that further and you're thinking about sport and then ultimately sport performance, the 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 space that you're in and the environment that you're in will change the way you physically act and it will change your your movement patterns and the way the way you operate so in a you know if you think about that in a i guess a rehab setting doing your task simply in a in a rehab room versus a strength and conditioning room versus a side of a pitch versus on a pitch physically changes the way you operate it changes the way you move. It changes the way you perceive the environment. And so it requires you to do different things. And so <clears throat> I guess my my starting point is that understanding that you are constantly linked with the environment around you and making changes will change your behavior. So as you go on from that, you then, the, we then, we then, I guess the easiest way to break that down is we use our, uh, it's like a constraints pyramid, they call it. But essentially, it's about understanding a few things that we can identify that as practitioners, we can manipulate to change behavior or to make sure that behave, the behavior that we see in, you know, our, you know, our, let's call it our sterile rehab environment starts to mirror um, the performance environment. So we talk about task, individual and environment in nature, uh, the, the constraints of task, the constraints of the individual and the constraints of the environment and how those things interact to change somebody's movement patterns or required movement patterns. So, um, you know, an individual constraint might be that I'm taller, you're shorter, therefore the same problem that we're trying to solve will be different. You know, you could have one like fatigue, where as you're fatigued, you'll, you'll literally use a different movement pattern to get the same result. You can think about things like your psychology as, as, a, as an individual constraint and how that will change your, your approach to something, whether you're feeling really confident or not. It'll change your movement patterns or your necessary movement patterns in order to achieve the same goal. So, you know, our goal could be, I don't know, could be shooting a basketball scoring a goal shooting a basketball passing a ball catching a ball could just be standing there it could be hopping you know whatever it is as as these 
as your individual constraints change, so as your fatigue changes, you physic you need to have a different movement pattern to achieve it. And so your task constraints then get into as that task, so as that hopping task changes, so too does the movement pattern that you need to achieve that. So, you know, if you have to hop higher, you know, or lower, if you have to hop longer or shorter, if you have to do two hops, if you have to hop and hold, if you have to hop left, if you have to hop right, your movement pattern obviously has to change in order to achieve that. And so then you think about, you add that to say your individual stuff, you add that to your fatigue, and all of a sudden you've got all these different movement patterns that you need to be able to operate in order to hop. And then your environmental constraints deal with things like wind, weather, you know, the amount of sunlight, time of day, uh, the surface that you're hopping on, and all of a sudden you add those things in, and then you can see how you're constantly you're constantly being required to solve this problem or this task of hopping in a multitude of different ways. And so as you start to think about skill act in that way, skill acquisition then is really about understanding that variability in your performance and your behavior is inherent and your adaptability has to be enhanced with the idea that there is not one single way that you need to learn to hop. There's not a technique that you need but rather it's the adaptability of the individual, it's the flexibility of the individual, and I'm talking about flexibility of movement patterns or you know, ways to solve something. It's that, it's that variability and adaptability that makes athletes great. So, you know, the you know, you think about say a forehand in tennis, it's not the fact that I can hit, you know, Roger Federer doesn't hit a yes, he hits a great forehand, but he hits it on different surfaces. He hits it you know, when it's bouncing close to him or it's bouncing far from him. He hits it with different spin rates. He hits it at different speeds. He hits it to different points on the court. So we're never chasing a single perfect technique, but we're chasing adaptability in our technique. We're chasing the ability to deal with the inherent variability and, and go from there. I'm, I'm guessing there'll be somebody listening who will... Uh be appreciating what you're saying but be struggling because they've been taught and they've believed in a system that you know there is a a perfect technique or there is a perfect alignment and a perfect posture um how do you kind of uh, i guess for that person that thinks that way how do you uh, help them time the transition from you know looking at a very um idealized way of doing a task to then introducing that kind of uh you know more strategic and creative way to change the environment and the way that they do it and kind of change their ability to problem solve. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, I mean, there are things, I'm not going to argue that there are things that are more effective than other things. You know, if you run faster, you're probably going to say, if you run, if you do your run up faster, you'll probably bowl faster is, is sort of an example. But we have to understand that every athlete we work with is, is different. So they, ha- they will have their own movement solutions to the problem. As a, as a teacher or a practitioner trying to help them, your goal is to help them find that movement solution. And so as opposed to saying this is the right way to do it, our goal really is to put them in a place to allow them to experience it and almost let their body decide whether that's good or not. You know, almost giving them a, a menu of we could do it this way, this way, this way, this way. You let me know which one's better rather than me saying the best thing you can do here possibly 
is to do this and think about this because I mean really the that individual's answer has to be their own answer with the understanding that in addition that answer is also going to have to change based on the situation that they're in so I guess uh, I'm not going to argue that that maybe I'm going to argue <laughs> maybe I'm going to argue that there is one way to do things because I mean, even when you think about there's one way to do things, right, or there, there's a perfect technique for something, maybe I just, maybe I just don't, be, maybe I just don't believe it. I don't, <laughs> does that make sense? I, yeah, no, it does. It's hard, isn't it? Because we're, you know, I'm, and I'll, I'll be very honest, I'm kind of forcing an, a, a deliberately an absolute situation upon you <laughs> as a catalyst for this conversation but yeah okay well let's let's think about like let's think about a really simple task you know, let's let's say do a squat or something where we know that if your knees get into a certain position it's dangerous so i'm not going to argue with with anybody that it's dangerous to do that but we also have to understand i guess the 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 things that are going on within that person which may make it not necessarily as bad for somebody as it might be might be for somebody else so while yes we have our model of technique which which we believe or, or maybe we know is better we have to make sure that that is not forced and set in stone so that we're jamming everybody into that creating this sort of this robot person that looks a certain way we're almost we're almost taking a step back and taking understanding that technique from a principles point of view what is it about that technique what is it about the principles of that technique that gives gives it strength or gives it speed or gives it power and how do we apply that to the individual i think is the important thing so to me it's almost a, it's almost a higher understanding of what that technique is it's an understanding of well, why, you know, in running, why do I want the knee in that position? Why do I want the foot in this position? Why do I need them touching down here in the body? Well, it's because it it, it has this effect. And so rather than saying, rather than saying, well, this is what I need to do, I need to create this effect. And so it just allow it, it gives me a little bit more flexibility in my in my sort of my teaching of technique or my showing an athlete through a technique because I'm not I'm not convinced I have to make them look exactly like this but I need them to try to get these outcomes yeah and I guess really what we're looking at uh, I don't know if you'd agree with this is we're trying to get people to like an idealized bandwidth of effective movement rather than everybody doing it exactly the same there's a kind of trend that you know high performers or um, efficient movers at a task have similarities between the way that they perform the task. And that's maybe the perfect technique is maybe the perfect bandwidth that we're trying to get them to. Is that a fair kind of um, statement from your point of view? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I think, but I would, I would couch it with the idea that we, we definitely do get a little bit excited about, about thinking that there is a way to do things. And sometimes we, or, uh, myself included, we don't give athletes the space to explore their own solutions. Sometimes, I mean, you think about someone like Usain Bolt, who is, who was, you know, a foot taller than the rest of his competitors. He had to structure his race differently to other hundred meter sprinters because he was different. Yeah. And so, if we if we forced him to do the things that sprinters do you know traditionally we would have lost what made him what what made him amazing and so sometimes we have to also think about well what is this athlete good at 
what are they capable of rather than what are they not doing right, what's wrong with their technique. Because I think sometimes, you know, and even going back to where we started, that idea of, of biomechanics and measurement, sometimes we get so focused on what athletes can't do that we spend we spend all our time working on what they can't do rather than embracing the fact that, well, hey, maybe they're the best in the world at this and we should embrace that and spend our time making their strength stronger rather than their weaknesses better. My next question comes from personal experiences I've had completing research myself recently. Given your interest in you know, bridging this gap between biomechanics and then skill acquisition, how do you personally think we can balance out testing sterility and practical transferability? And the reason I ask is sometimes for a test to be scientifically sound methodologically, it can relate less to a practical or real environment. And as an example, during, say, ACL rehab, we can spend a few months queuing athletes away from knee valgus knee positions during different lower extremity exercises. Then we assess landing mechanics to observe that with greater load and task complexity during, say, a drop jump or a landing, uh, we see that knee valgus position. Then, of course, we program and intervene accordingly to see the athlete performs what was a sterile clinical test, quote-unquote, it's performed better. But that improved metric comes with months of queuing, bias, and in a far more controlled environment than on the field court or the ultimately the competitive arena. Sorry for the long spiel, but essentially I'm really interested to know how do you navigate this and also feel free to just completely bash the question or, or the context that it's put in. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it's, I mean, it's something that I wrestle with as well that, okay, we, we need a pre and a post because I need to prove that I was useful or I need to prove that I've made this athlete better. And so the easiest way to do that testing, right, is to have him in our lab do our box jump, do our drop jump, and say, see, their knee valgus is less than when it started, so I have made a difference. And then, and and we do we do need to show that that they're making an improvement. We need to show to the athlete that they're getting better because they need that confidence, especially returning from injury, that that you know they're better than they were before. But it also it also feels sometimes a bit like it sometimes feels like the sort of a math test at school where almost maybe even where we started that they're doing it that we're putting them to do a test that is completely irrelevant and doesn't really matter and and they're never going to have to repeat on on court or on field and so why are we even doing it maybe we maybe we're putting them through high school science when when what they really want is the applied science experience that they got in university so i guess i understand why we do our sort of sterile test you know, let's, well, maybe sterile is a bit harsh, but we do our lab-based tests because we need to track progress. We need to show that they're getting these basics right, which I think I think is an important underpinning. You need to get your basics right because if you can't if you can't hop and hold for three seconds in a lab, you probably can't hop and hold on a field, and your knee probably doesn't have the stability it needs when you're receiving a pass at a bad angle you're fatigued you're facing the wrong way and you're about to get pummeled by somebody three times your size so i I, and i think with that sort of example i think sometimes we underestimate how how bad it is when athletes are not not getting things right in their in the sterile in the lab-based testing 
world. And I think sometimes we, I think sometimes we almost underestimate how much more improvement they actually need in order to build the adaptability in that in that knee strength, that knee recovery that they're going to need in the future. Because in the future, they are going that knee is going to put under some really really hard demands. And I really don't think that we reach or accurately represent those demands in our in our um, in our traditional athletic rehab settings. So I think we almost <clears throat> we almost set ourselves up for failure by not by not pushing athletes far enough in the t- in in the testing world when we have the chance to. And I guess those examples I'm talking about, if we think about how you would manipulate task, individual and environmental constraints that they're about to face, we can do all that in the lab, but I think sometimes we're almost afraid to because we, to give, I mean, two sort of skill acquisition principles that I like to talk about is one of the ways we learn is by making mistakes. We make a mistake, we then reflect on that mistake and that mistake allows us to learn and get better. But when I think about rehab settings, it's so much about let's get it right. Let's get the technique right. That's good. That's good. Keep your knee there. Keep your knee there. That's it. We're going to do 10 in a row. Wow, you did 10 in a row. Good, good, good. So you've now spent sort of this bunch of time having somebody giving them external feedback about their knee, then focused on their knee and doing this, this quite specific task that they're getting better at. But we're about to put them on a field where there's nobody looking at their knee. Their knee is not even the is certainly not the primary task. It's probably not the secondary task. It's probably not even the tenth task in their mind because they're running down the sideline. They're worried about you know the three defenders that are in front of them. They're worried about where their teammates are, and their knee is the last thing on their mind. But what they've been taught. The stuff they've been taught now has no relevance because they're not getting that same sort of feedback. So I think the I think what we need to do is just to encourage, I guess, variability, encourage change and encourage mistakes in the learning environment so that we can actually learn how to solve the problems ourselves. And I think a lot of that comes from just the, a really simple context of blocked versus random practice. And so blocked practice um, is... The repetition of the same movement over and over again, chasing the right technique. And I deliberately say chasing the right technique because you're usually trying to repeat a certain movement pattern. Random practice is much more around sort of variability every repetition. Uh, I love the phrase repetition without repetition, where you're doing your hopping task but you're adding slight changes to it every time to create adaptability and variability in that movement rather than trying... So you're still trying to achieve the same goal, but you're trying to create different ways of solving that because you know you know that that variability is what they need when they get back on field. And me simply getting them to do the right movement over and over again is actually unhelpful. Now, where this gets... Where what the science says is, if I do a lot of block practice, I will get better at that movement pattern. I will look better in training, but my transfer my transfer results are are much worse. If I do random practice, I will look worse in training and worse in practice, but I'll do better on my transfer tests. So I mean, it, it sort of makes sense, right? So that if you know, it, you know, you can do the shooting a basketball example. If I do if I do ten shots in a row, 
I start to get better at getting it in. And, you know, people love to use phrases like, oh, I go get in the groove. You know, I'm, I'm just getting my mechanics right. I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, my, my seventh, eighth, ninth, I really start to feel it. And you're like, well, that's brilliant. But let me know the next time you get seven or eight chances to get your groove and find your radar and, you know, feel your, your shooting technique. And I'll tell you that you're not playing basketball. So really, the skill of a basketball shot is actually being able to assemble a shot from wherever you are on the court with whatever else is going on at that moment. You have one chance to get your radar going, not seven. So why we practice, why we practice, the, so we, we do one, our first shot is the most important, and then we spend the next six trying to work out what we did wrong rather than getting, you know, rather than repeating the thing that we actually need to learn to do, which is to, you know, solve the problem the first time. And so we, we sort of do that in, in our, you know, in our hopping example as well, right? So we, we do 10 in a row or we do 15 in a row. And really it's, it's probably only going to be one bad turn in a situation that they're uncomfortable in, which is going to redo that ACL. But we, we sort of falsely believe that the fact that we that we've been practicing the right way so many times somehow has programmed them to magically land with their knee right, you know, in all these random situations. Because, but it, it doesn't work like that. We need to have put them in these positions to learn different ways to move to keep themselves safe, rather than teaching them the one way to keep that knee in place in these certain situations because again that variability is what they need to learn they need to find multiple movement solutions they need to find how to deload that knee when when somebody's tackling them when somebody's pushing them when when that legs not directly under their body because their legs not always going to be under their body when that knees you know that knee might fall in because somebody is pushing them or what What's their solution? And so often, so often we think that I'm working on the knee, so I need to give them feedback about the knee. But so often, the answer to the problem is actually not at the joint that gets that gets injured, or not at the joint where we we see the technique problem. It, it might be the direction that their foot's pointing. It might be the fact that you know they're they're not landing on the heel properly. It might be that their hip stability is bad. It might be that their left shoulder is doing something weird. It might be that their head's in the wrong position, but we we get so focused on well this is the problem area and this is this is this is where i see it's wrong so this is where i need to put my you know this is the the bit that i need to interject as opposed to actually looking at well where's where's the problem starting and how do i fix that and i guess you know the you know i was i was privileged enough to work with uh, sally pearson she's an australian hurdler for you know, we worked together for about a decade as I was her sort of technique or her biomechanist, I guess I'd call myself. Um, and leading up to London, you know, we'd been working together for about four years and three, three and a bit years. So leading up to the London Olympics, we spent, we'd spent years measuring her technique. And we, we were constantly trying to change we were trying to we were trying to find what was setting everything else off, because we'd change her knee her front knee angle and her back hip would go off. We'd we'd change her front hand position 
and her all of a sudden her for example her um her right shoulder would start to move and so we were constantly sort of chasing we'd fix one thing it would send something else off and we our, our challenge always was to find where things were going wrong and then how to and sort of how to improve that how to improve her movements and her her hurdle time and i guess where we got to was the fact that she needed to be the first thing is that hurdling is different every hurdle it's not the repetition of one technique each hurdle because you arrive at every hurdle at a different speed you arrive in a different sort of position of balance uh you're at a different position in terms of fatigue your race competitors are in a different position so first off we we encouraged her we encouraged that we had to embrace multiple techniques to hurdle quickly rather than just one and what we started to learn was that if we got her to take off from from you know we're talking about that bandwidth if we got her to take off from the same bandwidth or a specific bandwidth at each hurdle that was where we had our best hurdle times and so what we actually did to fix a hurdle technique or to improve her hurdle time was to teach her to get to the same takeoff area every hurdle no matter what and so it was actually all the stuff that happened before the hurdle which was shaping a hurdle technique not the hurdling itself so so again i i use that example because i sometimes think that we look too far we look at what's we find what's gone wrong and we try to fix it there whereas what's actually gone wrong happened a long time ago and we're actually just we're just sort of playing catch up from there so so i really believe i guess sort of in in sort of rewind when we see a technique problem rewinding and working out well how have they got in that position rather than why is that position bad I have to say, mate, as a as a podcast host, uh, you know, I always feel some responsibility to say something at the end of what somebody says. Um, but that was such a wonderfully um, uh, just full answer, just full of detail. I, you know, I don't know where to begin with that one, but yeah, that that was a very good answer. And I think I really appreciated actually. You know, it's obvious that you've got um, the technical knowledge and stuff, but I really just appreciated how much you were able to zoom out to the big picture. Um, and actually kind of make the difference uh, in the sporting arena from what you were saying. And I think maybe, you know, maybe we actually do get too good or, or you know, we go too siloed into looking at small things too often, too often. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, I mean, this is where we started, right? That there's no, there's no point in measuring something and saying, and, you know, just saying that something's wrong. We have to we have to genuinely come up with a plan to make them better, and that making them better is not just about making them better in our space, whether that's a lab or whether that's a training room or whether it's a strength room. It has to transfer onto the field, and so we have to understand that 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 we need to challenge athletes further. We need to encourage them to make mistakes in our safe place, which is not a game. Uh, so we've got a safe space here in our training environment. Let's encourage them to make mistakes here to learn, so that so that they can learn. Because that you need to make those. There's, there's no good in saying, well, you know, what was really good is that they didn't make a single mistake this training session, and 
to those coaches, I say, well, what was the point of the training session? If you didn't make a mistake, what did you learn? If 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 you didn't make a mistake, I would say that you didn't you didn't set your challenge point high enough for the session because you can do everything. And you know, we we've, we've got we've done research on this as well, and so have other people that there you need you need to make your training difficult enough to make mistakes so that you can learn. You know, there, there's other stuff where if you make too many mistakes, then it destroys people's confidence and they feel terrible about themselves and the learning process goes backwards and you know some athletes will deal with that better than other athletes you know and so you you're constantly moving that challenge point to encourage a level of mistakes and encourage a level of learning and then bring it back to give them some confidence and so on and so forth but the especially in a rehab setting the fear that we have in in you know, we have this we have this crazy fear that well, if they do the wrong technique once, well, then they'll learn the wrong way to do it. But conversely, we also say, well, they need to do the right technique ten times in order to learn it. It's like, well, hang, hang on. I thought you said if so, you think if they do the wrong thing once, they'll learn how to do that. But if they do the right thing nine times, they won't learn how to do that. Like we, we sort of <laughs> sort of jam ourselves into this weird spot where it's like. Oh well, I don't. I don't want to tell them that. That's the. I don't want to show them the wrong way. And a, a lot of learning is about deliberately saying, "Well, you know, if you, you know, for example, knee valgus, like, let them get into that range of knee valgus in a safe space. You know, you don't want to load them up. You don't want to do it quickly. But let them feel what that feels like. Let them tell you where. You know, they need to learn to feel that difference." in good bad they need to learn to calibrate their body that this is bad this is good and i'm i'm pointing i'm currently bending my knee in weird places which probably doesn't make for great podcast material but they need to <laughs> learn to feel that knee tipping in and then then they then they can feel well, where else in that body am i feeling it because they probably can't you probably can't feel that that knee traction is a pretty hard thing to feel but feeling that stretch on your hip is something you can feel or feeling that foot twist is something you can feel. And well, I mean, we went through this with uh, like one of the BMX riders we worked with. So uh, Lauren Reynolds, she's a she's an awesome BMX rider. She was a BMX rider for Australia at, at the Olympics. And we were we were trying to get her to bend her elbows more in, so they, in, in their starting position. So they start at the top of a ramp, uh, held still, and we try to get in this in this sort of active position where they can essentially leap the bike out of out of the block so to speak and we were trying to get her to bend her elbows and we got we you get to this place where you're like bend your elbows and she's like i am bent and you're like no you're not she's like okay bend your elbows more and she just wouldn't move and she was like no i'm bending them even more and she was clearly she couldn't feel her elbows so her so us saying bend your elbows was and her trying to bend her elbows was a was a moot point. So, you know, we we took some photos. Anyway, we went through the process, but of you know showing her, sort of recalibrating her body. But the most interesting thing was that she found the place she could feel that difference was actually in her hands and in the pressure that was going on through her pinky finger. Once she bent her elbows, she could feel the difference in pressure in her pinky fingers and how it was gripping the bar 
rather than in her elbows. And so if you can picture as you bend your elbows, you know, you can probably do it as you're, as you're doing like a bench press or whatever. But as you bend your elbows, you can almost imagine that weight starts to distribute really evenly across your hands. And as you straighten your hands out, you start to maybe have more pressure on the inside of your hands. And so that's what she could feel. And then that was the, the movement cue that we gave her or that she gave herself in order to improve the technique of elbows. But we didn't get too quick. So it allowed us to stop saying bend your elbows and instead feel the pressure on your hands to change the technique that we wanted to change. And so I sometimes think that, you know, we had to we had to put her in positions, you know, we had to straighten her elbows, we had to bend her elbows, we had to straighten her elbows so that she could learn to feel what those positions were rather than just trying to get the right position all the time. So trying to calibrate that feeling was more important than repeating the right position. Something that's kind of on my mind while I talk to you is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is about position and uh, and ultimately uh, movement. And I think as an industry and in terms of kind of trends, we've, you know, gone away from a little bit looking at movement screens, you know, like the FMS in the past, as an example, or doing these kind of pre-season movement screens that you might see in team sports to now the current trend is gone towards force diagnostics, force plates, um, Nord boards, you know, and, and everything that goes with that. Um, how do we kind of, from your standpoint, how do we um, encourage the transfer of, you know, doing these tests, improving the strength and then seeing it evolve uh, in its natural kind of competitive way? How do we kind of, from a learning standpoint, um, bridge the gap when it comes to our current trend of force tests and skill acquisition? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I, think, I think it is important to have those building blocks in place. I think there, there should be an expectation that you need to be, you know, you need to be this strong to, to go on the roller coaster kind of thing. Like, you know, you need to, you need to pass these minimum standards in order to be allowed to, to do this because, because we have data which shows that if you're not, your injury, you know, your injury or your performance, your injury rate increases a certain amount or your performance decreases a certain amount. So I think, I think sometimes we get, we get, sometimes it's too easy to say, well, you need to be this strong or you need to be able to do this without necessarily knowing that that's 100% the truth. Uh, because again, because of those individual variables, like you know, like working with the men's basketball program here in Memphis, you know, these guys, like, you look across the team, they're all so 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 different. You've got these extraordinarily tall seven foot guys who are still growing, who are still you know, they're still turning into men, and you've got these short little guards who who are you know stocky and quick, and the idea of having these generic you know these generic rules as to what somebody needs to be able to do in order to play a sport i think sometimes are made up by us to make ourselves feel better rather than being based truly in science and i, I don't disagree that there are minimum standards we should try to achieve but we also need to accept that we probably probably need more individual individuality and flexibility in, in what what we what truly is and isn't so to speak um but i guess i guess when i'm thinking about these the sort of injury stuff or the movement screens i think 
I think it comes back to the adaptability stuff. And I think sometimes we get too caught up in in how somebody moves rather than can they achieve certain movement goals. So if I can, so say I need to be able to bend to a certain position, I would almost, I'd almost, I'd want to set the goals of achieving a movement position rather than necessarily saying I need to have an ankle flexion of this because it might not be in that person's best interest to increase their ankle flexion. But I, but I know that I need them to get into this certain position to be able to do the task that they're going to need to be able to do on field. So I think I, I tend to like to think to link, think of things about, well, what do I actually need them to be able to achieve? You know, let's set the goals rather than the technique to achieve the goals because I'll give them flexibility in their technique as long as they can achieve the goal. And if you say, well, if they achieve the goal this way, well, then they'll get injured. Will then design, will set your goal with those parameters in check. So, for example, we do some, we did some stuff with, um, you know, we know, we knew, for example, that um, with our triathletes, if they have, if they, a lot of them have pretty low and, and wide arm swings when they're running, it sort of comes from the fact that they do a lot of swimming and so their their shoulders are a, a bit more flexible than a runners would be, um, and they, you know, they're stuck in that awful position on the bike awful awful for running anyway um and so as a result their arm swings a bit different so we know that that's a technique challenge we know that it's not going to be perfect but we in in our teaching them of technique we add an extra layer saying your arms need to you not only need to run this uh you know within this technique bandwidth but we also we're also going to set harder sort of bandwidth so to speak on your arms because that's important so when I'm talking about a goal, you can be as you can be as rigid as you want in terms of the goals that you want to achieve, but just just think more about what you want them to achieve rather than the, the numbers that you need them to achieve. Yeah, because I think that you know, I you know I understand that there's uh, you know we have papers that show correlations between injury rate and a certain force output. And then we make the hypothesis that if we get everybody up to this strength standard, then maybe the injury risk decreases. And maybe it does, but I don't think it's as perfect a picture as we like to think it is sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And look, I'd find it hard to believe that that being stronger in your hamstrings is a bad thing. Um, and so you should definitely, like, if that's what the research says, then chase it. But I think... There's also there's also an understanding that you know if you take someone's individual constraints, I'm not convinced that say across a let's say across our football program here, you know we've got we've got a hundred boys on on the squad. They're they're football. They're all different shapes and sizes for a start. So you I'd find it hard to believe that they all have to have the same hamstring strength. They've all come from different backgrounds. Or first off, they're all at different different levels of their training age. They've all come from different backgrounds. They've all got their own idiosyncrasies in terms of the way they move and the way they walk and all that sort of thing. So I find it hard to believe that there is a there is a you know they all run they all technically run differently. And so maybe if you've got a better run technique, you don't need as strong a hamstrings because you're not fighting against your body the whole time. So I I definitely 
I definitely see why we need some standards, but I think sometimes we get too caught up in in the things in chasing the things that we can measure really easily because it makes us feel like we're making a big difference to to the program. And I think you know, um, there's a there's a tendency in in science to track the things that we can measure easily because it makes us feel like we're adding to the program without necessarily taking a step back and saying, well, what what do I actually want? What do I actually need to know to actually change behavior rather than what can I measure, which I think correlates to behavior? And I guess with that in mind and to loop around, uh, it kind of comes back to your point of understanding the the skill of, in the sport or the movement or the position, and then you can work backwards from there to prescribe the test of force or whatever it is that you actually need to do mm. you know like you said rather than going i can t- you know whether you think it consciously or not th- i can test this practically and easily across my whole squad so everybody will do this mm-hmm. assuming it will make a difference to everybody yeah and, and even like even some of those like strength tests like i you often think well yes, you can do this here in the gym, but do you have an appropriate one that also measures that on the field, but also measures that when they're when they're actually doing the task that you need them to do on the field? So if they're a lineman, has your hamstring strength that you've been working on, is that actually translating to their ability to push somebody around? I'm not so sure that, that, our, that we'd be quite so confident to say that what I'm doing here is making the difference on the field in this moment that I think it is. Yeah, and I think to, you know to expect greater buy-in from a player via you know um, testing things that are more sports-related rather than you know in the gym-related. You know, it's, it's reasonable to expect greater buy-in from the athlete in that context. But I think also a lot of physios, strength coaches, sports scientists, biomechanists will be able to relate in sport to wanting certain pieces of equipment because of the uh what it will provide them as a tool um mm. in their individual field but i think you know the, the people that hold the keys to the kingdom more often than not are the um technical and tactical playing coaches and management so if you can relate the tool and the force test that you maybe want as an example to a certain position on court or on the field then it's only going to be easier to kind of get the buy-in across the whole organization from the top down Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I mean, even I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to bag out our program here too much uh, here in Memphis because we're doing some really cool stuff now. But when I first got here, you know, we we just we we had the opportunity to get a catapult system, and the the first thing that I was asked to do was to measure, you know, start collecting some data. And it took us a while. It took us many conversations to work out, well, what do we actually want to know from this data? And those conversations were super, super valuable because they had to evolve from other schools are doing it. We know we know there must be some value because other schools are doing it to actually, what do you boys want to know about it? What, what, what is this? What can this data possibly tell you that will tell you enough that you would actually change your program that you're doing and we got to a really a really cool space in that well their programs are actually were actually really well structured we sort of knew that already and so 
some of the things that people were saying at other schools around why they used it didn't really apply to Memphis because you know our, our strength coach at the time and our field coach actually had all the, all those basics done really well. And the question that we ended up asking was was that they prescribe something on the field they will adapt it. Is their perception of hard work what they think it is? And so what we would do is we'd collect our data and we'd also collect a score from the coaches, the strength coaches, in terms of how hard they thought a session was so that they could start to calibrate their perceptions of difficulty, making sure that their perceptions of what we call it work rate and, and workload were what their what they thought it was. And the answer was pretty much yes, they were pretty much spot on. But that we ended up using that data, it really became a, a tool to highlight that their experiential knowledge as coaches was pretty much spot on. So they could be more confident in the decisions they were making in terms of pushing and pulling workloads uh, during training. And so we actually found a really cool use for a technology to answer a really applied question rather than almost using it to measure what you're supposed to, which is... You know, well, everybody measures workload. Well, yeah, but do they measure workload and then use that data to actually change anything? And, Mm. you know, and yeah, hopefully we did. Well, we certainly did. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I'm conscious of the the time I've had you for. Um, You know, before we sign off, is there anything um, building on what we've been saying that you just want, want to have the opportunity to say based on the conversation we've had? Uh, I think for me, I'm just, I, I really encourage all practitioners to be almost more bold and more more creative and almost more just more almost let their creativity be more present in the stuff that they design for athletes. I think we too often coddle athletes. We underestimate what they're capable of. And sometimes we don't include them enough in the process of getting better. And so my my encouragement to, to all of our trainers is that if if an athlete's replying yes or yep or or here in the south yes sir, um, that you're probably doing something wrong because you're not engaging them enough in the process. So I really I really encourage athletes to be involved in the designing of drills, athletes to be involved in the creation of cues athletes to be involved in in even the how long how many reps should we do something for because i think that them buying into the process of getting better is the is the changes that they need to allow those techniques to transfer into those performance environments so you know encourage mistakes talk less allow athletes to talk more encourage athletes to feel the right things rather than you telling them what the right thing is and uh, i guess really you know, make keep making the sport, keep making the sport and the sport movements the root of what we're doing, rather than the almost the textbook movements that we sometimes get caught in. We we had just the, my my final anecdote. We had a really interesting situation with one of our. We had a quarterback coming back from an ACL injury here, and we were collecting. You know, you were using the eye measure use sensors to collect lower limb data, and we had this really interesting thing where on one day we you know did our drills and then for for accidentally the next day he had a football in his hand um he just picked it up and was just playing with it and our data that second day almost all of his lower limb loads had almost had pretty much balanced themselves out when they'd been really uneven the day before and so just the process of him holding a football 
allowed him to stop thinking so much about that damn knee that he'd had a surgery on, he'd been looking at for, you know, six months. All of a sudden, just returning him back to something as simple as holding a football allowed his him to stop worrying so much about what had been injured and think more about the movements and the patterns that he wanted to achieve. So I guess continuing to, I guess, think about what we want them to achieve in the long term rather than what we think they need in the short term, I, th- I think is, is really where I'd love to finish today. I think that last quote is absolute gold. And um, I, I really do thank you for coming on, Daniel. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely very excited and, and I'm looking forward to listening back to this episode and kind of making my own notes for my own practice. And, and I'm, I've got no doubt that the listeners will have pen and pen in their hand or making notes on their phone while they listen. So um, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. And thanks for coming on and parting your wisdom with us. Cheers, <laughs> cheers. I don't know, I don't know how much wisdom I've parted, but uh, I, you know, hit me up on Twitter. Find find my email. Uh, yeah, visit the Human Performance Center website to find out about more what we're doing here in Memphis. Um, you know, collaboration is is key to me. You know, learning from each other is 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 vital to all of our growth. So yeah, anybody who's got any follow up questions, yeah, don't hesitate to send them through via via whatever method you want because I'd love to chat. What is your um, Twitter handle before you disappear? Uh, I'm at Daniel Greenwood, but my wood is with two two zeros instead of O's. Cool. All right. Well, we'll um, we'll link that in the show notes as well. But um, yeah, it's great to chat to you again, mate. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers, Andy. Appreciate it, buddy. Big thanks to Daniel for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed freshing some practical topics of problems that we tackle in the clinic, in the gym, and also on the field. Thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast. Please do us a favor and subscribe to the show. And even more importantly, if you could just leave us a review and or a rating, that would make a big difference to the long-term success of the show. Don't forget that we are on Instagram at Performance. And we are also on Twitter at InformPod. You've been listening to the Inform Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Check out the next episode for more performance and sports medicine insights.